0: And he credited Erasmus with penetrating to the heart of the Reformation. He said, others think it's indulgences. Others think it's authority. The issue of the Reformation is the powerlessness of man before God. This 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 Let's be honest. Talking
1: about our faith, it can get hard sometimes. Who was Jesus for real? Sometimes we get caught up in the world. But now, the world will have to get caught up in us. We're here to talk about it. We're here to talk about our real faith. We're here to talk about the real God. For unapologetic apologetics everywhere, welcome Welcome to Tactical Tactical Faith Faith Radio. Radio. Welcome to Tactical Faith Radio. This is Matt Burford. Again, I usually don't bring people into my basement that I don't like. It's (laughs) rare that I do that. And I always say in my podcast, I'm bringing somebody that I love. Here's another person that I love and I just enjoy being around. One of the um, great things about Tactical Faith, and in in fact, I'm going to give you a little secret of my success, if what you call what I do successful, (laughs) is surrounding myself with really thoughtful, significant Um, What's another adjective? Somebody with gravitas, somebody that when they walk in the room, you know right off bat they're going to have something significant to say. Uh, I actually have the pleasure of having that person in the war room in the Tactical Faith recording studios. His name is Joel Busby. Joel.
0: Hey, Matt. Good morning.
1: Joel, tell me a little bit about who you are, what you're doing now. I'll tell the listeners that I met you, what, six years ago? Yeah. Maybe? Probably, yeah. Yeah? Yeah. Uh, I remember you walking in. We were both getting our, our starting our doctoral program together, and we started talking. And I thought, the very beginning, I thought this guy has got something to say and something significant. Um, he's going to be fun to listen to. Uh, tell me a little bit about your journey. Tell me a little bit about
0: where you are. Tell me about what you do. Sure. Well, first of all, good morning, and, and thank you for having me, Matt. I, uh, those are kind words, and I have a lot of respect and admiration. Um, for the work that you do, and just the friend that you are to me. Uh, yeah, my name is Joel Busby. I am a local pastor in Birmingham, Alabama. Um, I had the privilege and honor of planting a new congregation um, a few years ago. That church is called Grace Fellowship. It's right at three years old. So I am a pastor and church planner. Um, I graduated in 2011 with a Master of Divinity from Bisa Divinity School, our alma mater, and then um, spent some time in college and university student ministry um, with a local church in Birmingham called Mountain Brook Community Church. Um, A lot of Christ and culture issues and teaching and things I got the wade through in that position. And uh, then a few years after that, um, a church in Birmingham called Redeemer Community Church called me on their team to gather a group of people to plant a church Really on the western side of Homewood, if you're familiar with the Birmingham area. So, a church is called Grace Fellowship. Um, it's about three years old. So I'm just a local pastor.
1: Ah, uh, you're well. There's so much to say about that word pastor, right? Sure, of course. Um, if if somebody was to ask you what it is that you do as a pastor, what what's what your what's your week look like? What does your day look
0: like? Sure. You know, uh, I'm a big admirer, especially when it comes to, like, a philosophy of pastoral ministry. I'm a big admirer of Eugene Peterson, and Eugene Peterson talks about how the the basic work of a pastor, there's there's really three parts. A a pastor prays, a pastor preaches, and a pastor listens. I think that's a good way to think of the work that I do, so um, a lot of time... It's a privilege. In my 8 to 5, I get to devote time to praying, to praying for folks in my congregation, working my way through a list of of needs, and I spend a good bit of time in prayer um, preaching. So a good bit of my week is spent um, trying to immerse myself in God's Word so that I can uh, bring God's Word and God's words before God's people. And that happens both in like formal settings and sermons and classes and workshops and seminars and teaching of all kinds, but it also takes shape in one-on-one meetings where we talk about the truths of God's Word and how they apply to a person's life. And then that third piece, listens. I spend a lot of time. It's a personal interest of mine and a passion I have just for what I call just the care for souls, Um, sitting down one-on-one with folks um, and listening um, to the things going on in their life and and try to, to shepherd and care. So that's kind of that's kind of my week, man, praying, preaching, and listening.
1: Yeah, well, usually when people think pastoring, they think uh, therapeutic help, right? This guy's here to help me with issues that I have, stresses I have in my life. Um, yep. I was reading an article um, last week um, um, about a theologian named uh, Thomas Torrance, and he was mentioning a, a guy named Friar Jock Dalrymple, or Dalrymple, I don't know how you say it, in Edinburgh, and they were talking about how pastors today are not being trained correctly. And in seminary, they're being trained to help people um, become more in terms of therapeutic issues of the church and not leading them to Christ. But th- those are things that you have to think separately sometimes. Sure. Uh, do you agree, disagree? I mean, do you think a lot of pastors spend more time with therapeutic issues and not enough time helping lead people towards Jesus Christ?
0: Yeah, well— you know, the word therapy itself or the idea of therapeutic has to do with the the concept of healing. So I, so I do believe there's a there's a counselor, psychologist um, who talks about you know there are therapeutic resources in the Christian faith, so they're they're healing things. But I do believe um, that a pastor really has to think carefully about what they are. and and I, I tell my people a lot like i'm I'm not I'm not a therapist. Um, I have some training in pastoral counsel, but even to, to modify the word like that pastoral counsel, I think is important. Um, you know, if you were to, if you were to hear someone described and someone were to say, you know, that guy's very pastoral. What we, what we tend to think is someone who, you know, is really good at at counseling, but I think, I think biblically, someone who's very pastoral is someone who's someone who feeds sheep, who leads sheep to where they can graze and, and eat and be be healthy. So, I just think the pastoral the pastoral piece of pastoral counsel is being able to counsel from the truths of God's word. So, when someone comes to me with an issue like, "Hey, pastor," um, they don't call me pastor by the way; they just call me Joel, um, but. <laughs> Hey, Joel, I'm really struggling with issues of, of anxiety, for example. Um, one thing I'm try, I try to be careful to say is, well, you know, I'm not, a, I'm not a therapist, but but I'd love to get together with you and talk about that and talk specifically about how the truths of the gospel meet you in anxiety. Let me teach you something of what the will you just humor me and let me teach you what the Bible might say about anxiety. Um, but then after that, let me refer you, to, refer you to somebody who can who can really help you with different training. So I do believe it's important to understand the distinctions between what's uniquely pastoral versus what's therapeutic or licensed counsel sort of work. So. Well, let's move into
1: um, another issue. One well, that's similar when it comes to pastors. Give me some things that you think that modern pastors are dealing with that maybe weren't dealing with even 25, 30, 40 years ago.
0: Sure, man. Well... The most immediate thing that comes to mind is uh, I think pornography in the pocket is a big deal. So I think the idea of, you know, Matt, when you and I were were growing up, um, you know, somebody had to find someone who could find them maybe a magazine or something like that versus to be able to have um, pornography of every kind literally in the smartphone, in the pocket of every person. I just think pornography is nothing new, but I think Russell Moore talks about how pornography has been weaponized because of the internet and smartphones. So I think I think that's a, that's something. I mean, there's not a day that goes by in my pastoral ministry where I'm not talking with people about um, just sort of the grip of, of pornography. I mean, that's, that's one. You know, there's a lot of research that's been done about just the loneliness in the late modern world. Um, there's something about our world and we could talk a, a lot more about this that that creates deep loneliness you know pseudo connections through things like social media but no authentic ones and i spend a lot of time talking with folks about about loneliness and trying to bring the truths of the gospel to bear on problems of loneliness and I, and again i don't know that that's new but I, I don't know that it's is is i don't know it's like the social fabric used to just include connections, you know, front porch sitting, you know, the bo- the bowling leagues, stuff like that. And that seems to have gone away, and there's just, just intense loneliness. I think some of the pace of life, um, the busyness, the constant connection, I do think problems of anxiety, you know, are pretty pronounced. Um, those are just a couple things. That yeah, that's on. good. Yeah.
1: So how do... W- So now if you're speaking about those issues to now let's talk about instead of somebody that's a lay person, what about another um, friend that's in the same um, position as you are, Mm -hmm. um, other pastors? Um, You talk about philosophy of pastoring. Yeah. How are you helping to support your, you know, maybe other people that are going through some issues? One of the things we really wanted to get to, maybe this will lead into it, is you really think that um what we would consider the reformers or even the ancient writers of the early church might be a help on issues today yeah um give me some of that because i know you've done a lot of work in augustine um you spend a lot of time reading you know um what you know, many would think would be the old guard speaking to a culture that was long ago. But Chesterton talks about the democracy of the dead, right? That that what people have said in history is worth us thinking about, reflecting on, the tried and true things that have made it to today are things that are worthwhile for us to help us and to prepare us and how would that work in the pastoral world who are who are people that you read that you reflect on that you think would be helpful for other pastors to read and reflect
0: yeah sure well i mean you said it you said it but uh man i just think saint augustine is is such a good resource you know so if you if you were to read augustine's confessions you'd be tempted to think augustine's confessions were written like yesterday in New York City. I mean, it's a quest of a young man to try to find meaning, to try to search for significance, who is literally trying to climb the ladder of achievement. Um, his, his parents, his, his mom, and his really his father, both are pressing this achievement on him, they are ambitious for him. They they put him in all these tutoring. They put him in all this... I mean, the equivalent now of what we would think of like all these special enrichment classes so he can score the highest score. He can score on his ACT so that he can kind of become an achiever in Carthage, which is in northern Africa. And he he really wants to make it to Rome, which is sort of a cultural center of the ancient world. But then he really wants to go to Milan because the Roman emperor actually, actually sat in Milan at the time of Augustine. So... He is climbing the ladder of power and achievement. He is completely giving himself over to every, every sort of sinful pleasure that you can think of. Um, and uh, and he's, he's looking at all of this, and he's, he's seeing the absolute emptiness of it. Um, and, and so I think Augustine is so good. Um, you know, there's others. Like, I immediately think of, of St. Irenaeus, of Leon, you know, a church father who who did so much work on the authority of scripture and scripture sufficiency. You know, almost every objection to Christianity that you hear today uh specifically with regard to scripture and the authority of scripture. I mean, Irenaeus was talking about that stuff, you know, literally almost 2000 years ago. Um you know, as 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 maybe Th- which is appropriate for today. Um, today is technically Reformation Day. Oh, it's Halloween. Yeah. Right? We, well, I think you and I should probably think of it as Reformation Day.
1: So wh- what is Reformation Day? <laughs>
0: so uh, on October 31st, fifteen seventeen, Is that right? October 31st. We'll get the fact yeah, we'll check. Yeah, we'll check that. Martin Luther nailed his 95 Theses on the door at Wittenberg, and, which wasn't exactly the beginning of the Reformation historically. That's a complex the price of information was a complex phenomenon but that was certainly a watershed moment and that happened on october 31st so uh you know we might go get candy with our children and all that but at the end of the day we're really supposed to think about martin luther today i think you know that
1: well if we're thinking about martin luther um what are we thinking about i mean what, what in the world can martin luther help me out with today
0: yeah, absolutely. So, I've got this theory and and this is this is my my theory and it could be totally wrong, but Martin Luther is a bridge figure between really like the pre-modern world and the modern world in a lot of ways and I actually kind of think Martin Luther in some ways becomes maybe the first Christian psychologist in some ways. I mean, Martin Luther spent a lot of time trying to think about the way that the truth of God's word and the way the gospel actually meets a human heart and soul in the depths of who they are. All right, so you know Martin Luther is a is a Augustinian monk again. Augustine. Uh, some of our professors at Beeson Divinity School talk about how the Protestant Reformation was really a recovery of Augustine, but that might be another talk for another day. But uh, but Martin Luther is an Augustinian monk, and he's just dealing deeply with, with this phenomenon of guilt. You know, I know that I have done things wrong. I know that I have transgressed God's holy boundaries. I know that I break his laws. And and Martin Luther's feeling this intense guilt, and he's trying to do all the stuff. He's praying the prayers, and he's going to his his confessor at the monastery who's telling him to— to do these things to assuage this guilt and he would do them he would obsess over them and he'd come back again and still feel so guilty and his his confessor finally had to say Luther you got to let it go like like god forgives you and and he just couldn't for some reason the truth of of his faith he couldn't get to actually connect somewhere deep down inside his heart so I think Martin Luther is just this incredible resource for, especially the pastor today, of thinking about how does, how does the gospel really on the down-to-earth ground level take it out of the abstract, put it into the concrete of how does the truth of the gospel actually affect and shape a human heart? You know, Luther makes a big deal in his preaching about how, you know, when you're preaching and you preach on a text of Scripture that gives a command Luther makes a big deal about how the Latin phrase is lex semper accusat. The law always accuses. And, and what Luther meant by that was that, that when, when a command of Scripture is preached, the human heart will hear that immediately as an accusation of the way in which they've done wrong. So therefore, it's very, very important for the preacher to offer the truth of the gospel to that human heart. So that they can be absolved of that guilt, because of the work that Jesus has done. And Luther's Luther's just a great resource for that soul, deep soul work that we were talking about All just right. earlier.
1: Well, practically, I mean, are they are are pastors and, and lay people going to get information on Martin Luther through an autobiography? I know Eric Metaxas has one. Are you going or would you advocate going straight to their writings? And where where do they go for those collected? Works, yeah, for people like Martin Luther.
0: Well, Martin Luther is a good example of um, of someone whose work's really been translated, and it's you know it's probably easier to find than some. But uh, yeah, I mean, I think you go to Amazon, and I think you just you just look for some of Luther's. Well, there's a, I, 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 you know let me put it this way there's a there's a uh, book that you can find that's called Martin Luther's Basic Theological Writings. So it's an edited volume. you know. Maybe we can somehow figure out exactly who edited that. But it's this edited volume that has really the, the, main, the main stuff from Luther. And that's a good place to start. Um, some of his stuff on justification, his stuff on the freedom of the will, all those sorts of things you can find in there. Um, so yeah, I'm kind of a, kind of a read-the-sources kind of guy. But there are some good, there are some good autobiographies. Um, Heiko Obermann wrote a really good Luther biography. Um, a lot of a lot of Martin Luther biographies really, really dwell on this idea of Luther's a man between God and the devil. <laughs> this kind of wrestling work that Luther did in his own spiritual life. A lot of autobiographies really draw that out. So,
1: a pastor's life is pretty complex, you know, and it's stealing time to do reflection is hard for a lot of pastors, right? Yeah. Yep. So again, you're you know, me and you like to read. You know, we we, we tend to like the life of the mind. We like to steal time to do our own personal reflection. Um, But what you're advocating for is, you know, spend time with good Christian thinkers Mm. and reflect on what they're saying about their interactions with Christ in their own time and in their own way. Uh, who else um, other than Martin Luther, if this was Reformation Day, give me give me two other two or three other reformers. give, give me somebody else. Who, who else? We all know Martin Luther.
0: Yeah, who absolutely. Else? Well, the the next one we all know is probably John Calvin. Uh, so, so John Calvin perhaps is known best in our circles for being this kind of stodgy, somewhat stuffy ivory tower thinker and that's really just that's just really just not who Calvin was at all. you know you can actually pick up a book. Um, called Calvin's Letters of Pastoral Piety Where you basically get to see the personal pastoral letters That he wrote to people in his congregation So as a pastor you can see the way that John Calvin Who's one of the greatest thinkers in the history of Christianity No matter, no matter what you think of particular parts of his doctrinal formulations I mean everybody, everybody recognizes Calvin's one of the most important thinkers in the history of Christianity But he, he's really at the end of the day a pastor so he's got these letters that he writes to people in his care where he's trying to apply the truths of the gospel to their to their needs. Um you know John Calvin, one of the great things about John Calvin is John Calvin wrote tons of stuff obviously, but but Cal- the best stuff that Calvin does, I mean it's, it's not not even debatable to me, is Calvin's commentaries on scripture are just absolute gold. And those are all public domain stuff. I mean, type in Google John Calvin commentary on whatever text of scripture you're you're preaching and, and there you have it. And Calvin just gives such thoughtful, careful, um, insight on a text of scripture, but he's he's so pastorally minded. He's so thoughtful about the way in which a particular text gives hope to the actual Christian. I'm um, one of the one of the most important things, you know, from Luther, if from Luther I learned something about the way in which the gospel um you know really touches the human heart in the deep places you know it's from John Calvin that I really just learned so much about the sufficiency of God's word um, Calvin you know was known as the theologian actually of the holy spirit Calvin was known for his really rich reflection on the doctrine of the holy spirit which is maybe not something you immediately think of when you think of John Calvin but um but Calvin Calvin just has taught me so much about the idea that the Word of God will really do the work of ministry. It is sufficient. You know, it's, it's an inc- of incredible theological significance that when God makes the world, He makes it by speaking words. In other words, God's Word has a creative power. A lot of times I like to talk about this idea of speech act theory. It's this philosophical idea that there are certain things we can say that also become actions. So, for example, if you and I were in a crowded room and I yelled out, fire, everyone would get up and run because me yelling fire would be a speech act. It would be something that I said that would cause an action in a person. Well, the thing about God, the God of the Bible, is that all of his words are actions. When he speaks, worlds come into being and when he speaks through his word By the power of his spirit Christians come into being You know, We like to say around our church That the church is a creature of God's word God's word calls a church into being It, it is the creative power to make a church And uh, one of the things you can do When you read Calvin Is you can just see The way that so much of Calvin's theology Actually Was born out of just careful exegesis Of God's word Applied to the human heart in pastoral situations, so Lutheran Calvin, these are big time reformers. I'd certainly mention them. um I'd also maybe say a couple words about Thomas Cranmer, okay, so Thomas Cranmer is a reformer in England, and I want you to kind of imagine with me uh Burford this uh this problem right so you've got you've got thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of English um peasants. You know, citizens of, of what it was the nation of England and, and Scotland and Wales. And, and just this, in the British Isles, you have thousands and thousands and thousands of Christians spread out in these villages who who essentially are following a kind of superstitious religious system. And Kramer's faced with the problem about how do we bring the Reformation to England? And in a way that's a little bit different than a Martin Luther which Martin Luther brings the Reformation to Germany really through his lectures on Scripture because he was a university professor. And if, if John Calvin brings, brings the Reformation to, to France through his doctrinal writing, Thomas Cranmer, over many years, brings the Reformation to England, and he brings it through the worship practices of the church. So he's faced with this idea of of how do we get thousands and thousands of English peasants in all these little hamlets and villages throughout the British Isles to understand and recover the depths of the Christian tradition. And he says, here's what we do. We use the liturgy, the gathered worship of the church, and we begin to work in these ideas of justification by faith in the prayer life. You know, the, the 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 Anglicans, and they get this idea from Cranmer, obviously, but the Anglicans have this phrase, and I'm going to butcher it, it's a Latin phrase, it's Lex Orandi, Lex Credendi, and it means the law of prayer is the law of belief. So, in the gathered worship of... of... Of the church and the prayers that are prayed and the movements in the literal worship service. That's the places in which the truths of God's word and the hope of the gospel, in Cranmer's case, the the recovery of insights from the history of the christian tradition that became the reformation that's the way it sunk into the hearts of people is through the actual worship practice and when you're a pastor you know a big part of your week is you plan a worship service every sunday and to think about the movements of that service when we pray things when we have things prayed that we listen to when we hear god's word when we sing certain songs when we utter together confessions of faith and we hear an assurance of the gospel and we hear a sermon and we celebrate communion. All those things are doing these deep shaping works in the hearts and souls of people. And I think is a great place to go to think through how how hearts change through the practices and habits of Christian worship. So those are Luther, Calvin, Cramer, Those are three I just would just immediately throw out there.
1: So this is this is why you're so fun, right? You're always thinking about these issues. And one of the things that that always kind of, um, it, at least this is the reason why I set up my nonprofit uh, in 2011, was because this kind of reflection and thinking, while it's fun to have in academia and in, in the ivory tower, it's as important, if not more important, to have this kind of thinking in the church. And when I mean the church, I mean the church. And uh, it should manifest itself within the people. Imagine what it would be like if, if the leaders and the lay, all reflected on what you called um, the depths of Christian tradition. So they do that in word and worship, and then they practice it out in the community. What would our communities look like? Mm-hmm. And there would be, going back to what you said, that the speak act theory. There would, it would overflow into the community and all of a sudden the community would start shaping itself to look like the kingdom of god i mean that's the kind of the the pattern of what we're supposed to be doing right yeah absolutely so why why aren't we doing this i mean what 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 are the what do we have to do to get our churches to start thinking of this kind of reflection on just these three reformers is worth having in the leadership and the laity in the local church, not just those who want to go to ministry to get an MDiv or yeah, whatever. Yeah. I mean, how do we how do we support the life of the mind in the church?
0: Yeah, I mean that's a good question. And I know that's one that you've dedicated so much time to. Um, there's a few things that come to my mind when you when you frame that question. You know, at the end of the day, um, at the end of the day it's I think I think we try to we tend to think of figures from the history of the creek the Christian tradition, we tend to think that they are somehow inaccessible, but I think what you find is that it's actually way more accessible. Like, you you can follow a Calvin commentary on Scripture, and it makes more sense to you than something you would read hot off the press a few years ago. Like, I actually think the ancient sources are at times more accessible, so I think part of it is just getting past the hurdle that if something's older, that somehow it's by default inaccessible, and I just don't think that that that's true. Man, it, it, there's there's just there's just so many resources out there more than ever before. The, the the scope of the Christian tradition is really before us. I mean, there's so much so many works that have been translated. There's there's so much stuff out there on the internet, um, and I think what you find is is that pre-modern thinkers they. They kind of dodge some of the partisan controversies that you hear about so many times. They they're just not they're not attuned to certain controversies that are that are ultra modern. They're just they're more focused. They're more focused on issues of, of pastoral work. Um, so I think I think just first of all just just understanding that the that the ancient sources are incredibly accessible and practically relevant for there you go. The, the pastor. Sure. I mean, I actually go backward when I'm looking for relevant things, I kind of go contemporary when I'm wanting to just kind of have some fun thinking. sure. <laughs> but if I want to actually, if I actually want to think about being helpful to people, I, I always just have to go backwards because they're just, again, dialed in. And I think, I think just what you're saying, the idea that, that this kind of reflection has to happen in the church. I um, mean, I just, I just couldn't agree more. I, I had a professor in seminary who you know, I was I was sort of debating about what my life's calling was going to be, and you know, I had this nagging sense of calling that I wanted to just be an ordinary, plain Jane, local church ministry, and and I wanted to dodge that because it didn't seem, I don't know, man, it didn't seem uh, this is going to be a confession of sin, perhaps, but it almost didn't seem challenging enough. It didn't seem exciting enough. It seemed too mundane. But uh, this professor in seminary just reminded me like hey the the real stuff is, is in the real stuff is in local church ministry and he went on to tell me he's like you know it is it's probably easier to write a you know 20 page essay on the doctrine of the trinity than it is to help you know a 64 year old man understand how the doctrine of the trinity meets him with his pancreatic cancer diagnosis. Mm. And that that's actually robust difficult, challenging work to make applications from truth to actual people's situations. So so I think we have to be doing this kind of rich reflective work to even know how we can help people. Yeah. I mean I mean sure we can I mean, sure, lots of people do it. We can toss out platitudes to people who are struggling with deep problems of depression or anxiety or pornography or you know, their their kids are leaving their faith or they're deeply lonely, all these things we've talked about. And we could throw out we can throw out kind of hundred and forty character style platitudes to them. I mean, you yeah, know, we're welcome to do that. Everybody does that. But to be able to to really to really help our folks, I just think pastors have to be mining as an act of humility. We have to understand that Thousands and thousands of pastors over the course of thousands of years have thought deeply about these things. I mean, take a John Calvin, you know. We talk about all the fear in the modern world, like people are afraid of terrorism, or they're afraid of some kind of super virus that's going to wipe out half our population, or they're afraid of the big earthquake that's going to happen. Man, John Calvin ministered to people who were deeply afraid. I mean, this is, this is, the, you know, this is, this is the time of the Black Plague. I mean, this is a, a disease that wiped out almost the entire population of Europe, And Calvin's ministering in that era when that's still in people's cultural memory. You know, Martin Luther and John Calvin are ministering in times when, you know, a a farmer would go out and cut his hand on a rusty blade and be dead by 5 o'clock that afternoon. You know, so nothing new is under the sun. Um, For thousands of years, Christians have reflected deeply on these things and tried to make applications of our faith to actual people's hearts and souls and lives. And um, I think it's an act of humility as a pastor in 2019 to say, you know, I bet somebody 500 years ago thought about this. <laughs> sure. It's just an act of humility, which is good for our souls, too.
1: Plus, it in terms of being shaped as a Christian, right, you constantly, you were a baseball player. Yep. We've talked about this before. And I know a lot of athletes, and we'll wrap it up here in a minute, but a lot of athletes that I deal with, um, they when they become adults, the one thing they long for is, is the world of coach, being coached, being shaped, mm-hmm. having a purpose, having a goal, having something to, having a group to play with towards that goal. Yes. Um, and they miss that aspect. So, but when my mind, when I hear that, I think, but you're being shaped by multiple things, right? Uh, you have players that are alongside of you that are shaping. You have coaches and leaders that are shaping. You have a, oh, uh, this, this game that's shaping you. When, when you reflect on people like Martin Luther um, these individuals that you brought up, uh, you, you're, you're bringing them scripture, worshiping and community and trying to put that in practice. In practice, it's shaping you to become Christ-like. You're allowing all these voices to shape you. Mm. That's a humble thing, right? When you're in academics, let, listen, me and you, this, was a, this is something I wanted to do, right? I, I wanted to be that professor that was looked on as, as the know-it-all. And that just wasn't my life, and I had to kind of deal with that. And when I've come to ter- being a stay-at-home dad, to being a computer guy, to being where I'm at today, I think about all the people and places and thoughts and books and stuff that have shaped me to become Christ-like. Mm-hmm. And that's a humble place to be, mm-hmm. right? I wouldn't have got that if I would have stayed in an ivory tower teaching at a little Bible school somewhere. Yeah, I would have got it to an extent. Right. But what you're saying is, and this is something I don't have because I'm not a pastor. You have to realize the honor, even in the difficulties of being shaped by putting things into practice that are hard. Somebody that's going through chemo or somebody somebody's going through a divorce or even pornography addiction. These people are shaping you mm. and you're shaping them in together. Mm. That's a big deal. Yeah. I mean, that's, um, that's got a quality to it that we don't realize. And, and, and it might not come anymore with the accolades that it did 50 years ago. In fact, it probably won't. You know from the community they don't look at pastors the same way as they did 50 to 100 years ago
0: right it's just the conversation killer in my neighborhood what do you, what do you do for a living I'm a pastor oh okay <laughs> yeah
1: but the, the reality is being a pastor is an awesome opportunity to be shaped in ways that nobody else can be shaped as.
0: yeah I, I think you're right and I think that's something that just that just helps me love it um, you, know, you being a pastor Okay, by the way, when you're a pastor, you're not the kind of professional Christian standing over everybody, lording it over them in the way that which, you know, the Apostle Peter would say. But, but you're really a, a member of a body, okay? But you get to sit in a leadership role within this body. And that's exactly right. You get to just sort of be alive. Uh, you get to, you know, this, this idea that's aligned in the Apostles' Creed of the communion of saints... The idea that that because we are in Christ, we share this rich sense of fellowship together. Something like the bond that exists between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit exists between brother and sister in Christ. But the whole idea of the communion of saints in our conversation today is that bond still transcends cultures, times, places. it just it, it transcends and it flows and it goes all throughout the centuries. You know, I think that's, that's one of the biggest lessons that I've learned that places like Beeson Divinity School, my relationship with you, Matt, has taught me, our relationship with our pastor friend Kyle in Nebraska, with Calvin in Bessemer, you know, with Cameron in Virginia. These, these are all guys, Wayne here in Birmingham. These are all guys that uh, Matt and I did doctoral work with you know we we have a bond in Christ that transcends across geography and time and places and what we're here to say today is it goes even further it goes 500 years back it goes almost 2000 years back and and we're just part of this rich living tradition and if you know and if and if we've been given this this living tradition then that means we're stewards of it <laughs> and we get to keep it and then we get to pass it on to folks beyond us and and who are with us. And, and that's, that's really the, I, I think you're right. That's just the precious work of the pastors. You get to just kind of sit in that. You get to have conversations with the dead. You get to have conversations with church members who can teach you things with the John Calvin, with the Martin Luther, with the Thomas Cramer, with the Matt Burford. Um, with, it's, it's a great, it's a rich and, and beautiful and wonderful thing. And it's a privilege well,
1: you can see why I like
0: him, and you can see why I'd probably like to have him
1: more on. Uh, he's Joel Busby. Is there? Do you have any writings? Do you have a website or anything?
0: Or uh, not? Do really. we need to work on that? Yeah, we do. We probably do. Yeah. I, I really would like to write some more about these sort of things. Joel
1: has uh, has zero ego, even though he probably should have a huge ego for the kind of intelligence that God has given him. I I consider him a friend, and I'm, I'm hoping you come back on. Thanks for coming on Reformation Day.
0: Oh man, it's been a pleasure. Thank you, Matt. I'd love to come on anytime.